You are listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. We are an organization pursuing real learning, original scholarship, and thoughtful living in a dying age. Welcome to another episode of Christianity and Classical Culture. I'm your host, Stephen Heiner, and with me is Dr. Thomas Fleming. Dr. Fleming, thanks for joining us. It's a pleasure. When we last were on this program, we were discussing the notion of progress, and our conversation got went into, shall we say, the alleys of Florence, and we started talking a bit more about the relationship of a city to progress. We, we, we talked about walls, and, and I had brought up the, the walls in Florence, the, the walls in Paris, and, and you had pointed out that there are some cities without walls, a city like Sparta. So let's, let's start there with the idea of wall in relation to cities and the idea of progress, and then we'll continue on with some of the themes that we had spoken about in part one of this uh, series, of our sort of mini-series on, on progress, and then we'll, we'll conclude with, uh, with finishing up some of the discussions from part one. Yes. The uh, wall uh, from the beginning, really, of the time there were urban areas... The wall is usually, not not universally, but uh, most commonly, uh, a wall encloses a a settlement, even a fairly small settlement, because you have to protect what's inside. And without protection, without protection of property, without protection of shrines, without protection of the family, really there's no point talking about civilization. Civilization depends on storing food, holding on to property, and if, if, uh, if the best guesses of archaeologists, or the guesses that at least I most approve of, are in the in the Middle East are correct, the, the earliest settlements don't make sense, walled settlements at uh, places like Jericho don't so much make sense for economic purposes, they make sense as cult centers. So the city begins to a large extent as a place where people can be together to to worship. Uh, And uh, it's interesting, T.S. Eliot says something, in fact, there is, there is, there is no city uh, except in in the worship of God. And even in um, North American uh, uh, Indian towns in the uh, pre-contact days, we can the archaeologists can trace the building and development of larger and larger sort of urban areas. These are agricultural centers, but the center of the city is the worship, is the religious uh, shrine, and the ruler or ruling family are usually in, are somehow high priests or somehow involved in the religion, and these things then get so big that finally, and they, they occupy. Uh, so much of the resources of the community that find you there rebellions or people just move away. But you see the same thing in uh, South American Indians who are a, a good deal less amiable, you know, in the, the Aztec and Incas. But, uh, but really, worship, worship and therefore protection of the shrine is an essential part in the development of, uh, of, an, of an ancient city. And so you could see they, they, all, they have to be walled. Or, you know the the cities the few places that survived the door the so-called Dorian invasions for the the the, the end, end of the Bronze Age in Greece 
I know Athens on the Acropolis. They stood. They had a settlement almost uninterrupted during this period. It's it's uh, unusual in that respect. There's debate now as to whether it actually went through a period of being abandoned, but but it may, may, it may well well have. But still, there there is this continuity of ur- urban life in in Athens from the early Bronze Age uh, down to uh, well, not to the present. Um, but you know. It 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 has to it, these things uh, have to be walled, and the walls d- define us versus them, city versus rural, but also uh, man versus us versus enemy, and us versus the demons who would like to break in and destroy us. You know the Roman the pagan Roman uh, town was defined by the pomerium. The, uh, the the what was with the, the the circuit of walls, and there are things you can do inside and things you can't do. In many religious traditions, you can't have burials inside the sacred space. There are things that have to be done uh, outside the wall. So really, uh, walls really do def- define what it means to live in a city, and a city defines what it is to be civilized. Uh, this is. This is strange for Americans because we think, no, uh, purity and chastity and holiness are out in the woods, they're out in nature, and cities are places of corruption. This is not really the Christian view. The, the, uh, the, the forest is the place where devils live. And if you, you, I'm sure in college, Stephen, you had to read Young Goodman Brown, the uh, uh, the Hawthorne story, or didn't weren't they teaching it by then? No, I, I did not read that. In Young Goodman Brown, they, of course, these Puritans are going, are all meeting in the woods for some party, and of course, it turns out they're meeting with the old man of the forest, namely Satan himself, and because. It is in nature that we find these demons, and not and it, and the whole point of the town is to protect us from them. So uh, I, I I don't think that is exactly the notion of the city that we have today. Well, and you say that Sparta did not have any walls. So would we say that it, it's it, it, it's, a, it's, a, it's a hybrid city or it's some variation? Well, Sparta was unusual. They were proud. They said, we don't need walls. Our walls are, are the men of Sparta. Hmm. In other words, it was, it was an act of defiance, meaning we are the greatest men in the world and no one would ever dare attack us. This worked well until the 4th century. <laughs> <laughs> Right, come, 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 and take it. Something along those lines. Yes, exactly. Molan Labe, you know, come, <laughs> come get my weapon. So the Spartans are unusual. They they had they had a spiritual wall like every everyone else, but they felt the wall in at least in um, in the tradition that that her men were the wall, and it was a sign of their arrogance toward. Uh, toward the, the neighbors they had conquered, toward the Helots and Messenians, that uh, no, none of them would dare to lift a finger against Sparta itself. Usually, I mean, the wall is, uh, is a confession of vulnerability. You know, the Great Wall of China is not, or the Maginot Line in France, these were not, these were not expressions of, a, gee, we can lick the world. 
And similarly, the the outer the outer wall in Rome, uh, the Aurelian Wall, built by the great military emperor Aurelius, this was in a period of invasions, and Aurelian was taking the war to enemy territory very much. He reconquered a great deal of the empire and uh, was a thoroughly successful ruler. But he knew that Rome would not always uh, have rulers as successful as he was. And so uh, he, so these walls you see, for example, when you you drive up to the uh, the, the Janicolo and the, the, the hotel we stay at, you can, you can see all around, there are all parts all around Rome, like uh, not far from the train station, you, can, you see remnants of the Aurelian Wall. Well, you, the Aurelian Wall, if we go back to the very first wall that uh, someone was silly enough to jump over yes. and get, in, get into a fight with his brother, uh, a bad decision on Remus's part. Well, you know, that's an interesting story because on the one hand, I used, when I used to tell the story to my students, I'd always say, and thus, you know, Remus was a jokester. So he said, walls, you call this a wall? And he jumps back and forth. <laughs> Romulus kills him. I said, thus eliminating the humor gene from the Roman gene pool. <laughs> right. You could almost hear Romulus saying, six semper tyrannis. Uh, you know, so. <laughs> but uh, but uh, the real sin of that is that he leaped over the sacred enclosure. I mean, there's a reason why he had to die. Hmm. And and Romulus is rarely, you know, it's true, later Romans would say, well, you know, Rome was built on a crime, and just as Troy was built on a crime because they, they, they the ruler of Troy refused to pay the gods who, who built the city. And, you know, there are medieval Serbian poems in which you have to bear, and then, by the way, this is a very common uh, folk motif in uh, medieval poetry. You build a new city or a bridge or a castle, and you bury children uh, alive on the, in the foundation, and uh, or or the, in one case you buried a. There's a uh, there's stories of a of a, in building this Serbian town where you had the the mo- mother would come every day and nurse her children through the chink until they finally died. Mm-hmm. And uh, but the, these these are and people people choose not to understand these stories. There's stories like this in, in Wales, there's stories in Britain, and stories in Germany. The idea is that the construction of a city or of a new castle or of a bridge, these are sacred acts. They're, they're uh, what uh, some anthropologists would call liminal. That is, the wall is a threshold between the outside world and the inside world, and we have to <clears throat> To establish that threshold, there has to be blood, there has to be sacrifice, there has to be uh, even even the sacrifice of innocent human beings. So be- between that, that wall, that sacred wall, so the wall of Romulus going out to the Aurelian wall, what was the idea, again going back to our idea of progress, how did the Romans deal with a growing city and still having those walls, and how has that changed for the moderns? Yes, well, because the Romans had to continue to expand their conception of what the city was. And by the way, I'm I'm now uh, thinking out loud. This is not something we talked about or rehearsed or, or, or thought about. And so I'm going to be engaged in reckless, reckless speculation. 
But it seems to me that the concept of Rome was there from the uh, early uh, monarchy, from the Etruscan times, the idea of a walled city with the, the, the capital having a temple to, Zeus, to Jupiter uh, and that uh, the protection of the people and their gods and their cults, which is, of course, you see – uh, later on expressed in the Aeneid when uh, Aeneas takes his lares, his penates, the household gods of the Trojan state, and takes them to Troy. So Tro the Rome is the home to their religion, not just the home to families, etc. But the concept is there. And so as Rome is more and more successful, it keeps on growing outward. And of course, you have more and more people to protect. So you go through a series of building walls. You can't just simply say, well, we've outgrown this whole notion of the, the, the walled city state and we're, we're, we're just going to keep on growing and we, 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 we don't have to define because it's necessary to have, the, to have this defining sense, not just you welcome to Rome population five million three hundred seventy five thousand sixty-three. <laughs> you are now leaving. <laughs> yes, you are now leaving Rome. I think I think I told you once I when I was watching the end of a movie. I hadn't seen the the first hour called El Mariachi, a, a, a Mexican movie made by I think is it Robert Rodriguez, Richard Rodriguez, one of those people and. And it's about a guitar player who is in this rotten town and he's full of people trying to kill him. And he is a very nice young man and so killing a lot of people. And uh, at the end, as he's riding out of town on his motorcycle, I, I think there's an American version that Rodriguez made later. But this is the, this is the Mexican version. He's riding out of town and it says, you are now leaving Acuna. I had this very odd feeling because Acuna was the first place I ever was in Mexico. And so this horrible orgy of violence and destruction is taking place in some place which I uh, actually one of the few places in Mexico I know anything about. But yes, so the point is that the Roman conception of the city, it, it in terms of size, it had to keep on expanding. And of course, this becomes a problem when the city begins to depopulate uh, after the uh, Gothic destruction, sack of Rome in 410, and then the fall of the empire, and a Western empire in 476, when poor Belisarius, uh, Justinian's general, is uh, defending Rome, he has an army about one-fourth the size to defend it from the uh, Ostrogoths, and he has to keep on moving his troops, you know, from up uh, from the Pincian Hill, you know, and and uh, you know around the Villa Borghese, and he's got to move them all the way over to uh, to into Trastevere, and he, you know he just doesn't have the men. On the other hand, neither do the Ostrogoths; they can't surround the whole thing, and so the whole. Th and it becomes a uh, display of Romans, uh, Roman strategic intelligence against the really superior mil military ability of the Germans. But, um, but and you know, throughout the throughout the Middle Ages, they uh, the Vatican was always exposed, and so hence the Arabs sacked uh, the the uh, Trastevere in the Vatican area. Um, in the uh, in the uh, early ninth century, and it was Pope Leo the Fourth 
who built the walls and which then they called it, you know, the, 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 the wall, the Leonina, the Leo's city, because it took on a life. It became now defensible. And in many respects, more because it was smaller, more, uh, and it had the Castel San Angelo attached to it, it became quite a defensible, uh, defensible area. My point is that as as long as you had the ancient and medieval conception of the city, you had walls, and you know, <clears throat> this is contrary to the modern notion of the city, which is a place where strangers go to buy and sell things. Or as as uh, as the Persian king said of the Greeks, he he didn't worry about people who had a special part of town where you could cheat each other, <laughs> meaning, <laughs> meaning the agora. And that's essentially we fulfilled we fulfilled uh, 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 Darius's uh, view of the uh, of the Greek of the Greek city. It's it, it's interesting, Doctor, because I think about. As you as you know, Paris is surrounded by a ring road, and new construction is almost illegal. So we are pretty stable at two point two million. It, it it changes every year. It either goes down fifty thousand, it goes up twenty two thousand, but it doesn't really increase because there's no new construction. And what you have is a a, a capital within a country which has brought us the horrors of the French Revolution. But as far as they're concerned in city planning, it's 1870, right? Yeah. We, nothing is allowed to be changed. And, and what ends up happening then is you, we're, we're in a live experiment of what happens when you don't allow new construction and you have mo quite beautiful architecture apart from, as you've alluded to, medieval parts of, of, of a city. You have this museumification of large parts of the inner the when I say inner city in Paris we're talking about some of the more, the more, the more beautiful parts uh, not a inner city as you might conceive of in yeah. the United States. So uh, interestingly if we use that terminology inner city in the United States well that's where people have fled so they could go to the suburbs. There are suburbs around Paris but everybody comes here to work so you say strangers come uh, to cheat each other. Um, I was I was remembering the the other day as I was uh, walking across Pont au Change uh, to Ile de la Cité for an immigration appointment that Pont au Change is the the, the bridge of the money changers. Yes, and and I was thinking as those tourists were snapping pictures, what horrors must have uh, transpired on the money changers bridge uh, in 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 prior times? But we still very much in the city, despite somewhat being fossilized uh, in our in our growth. So we're stuck in 1870 here in Paris that we are still very tied to our neighborhood. So if you live in a, in a, in a neighborhood inside the, in what we would say the city walls, they even call it intermuros when you're referring to it. Even there's no wall. Yeah. It's a ring road. If you live inside the ring road, you tend to stay very much in your neighborhood within the confines of what a medieval Parisian would have. You, you stay on your street, you know your fishmonger, you know your cheesemonger, uh, you know that the uh, the bread lady is going to be upset if she sees you with bread from another bread lady. And so we have these neighborhood conceptions, but I think part of it is be we've there is a limiting wall, and those who don't live here still have to come in here to work, but then they go back to the suburbs and... You see that in places like New York, Chicago as well, Dr. Fleming. How, do you, how would you contextualize Paris's limitation, 
let's say New York's limitation, yeah. Chicago's limitation, with how this affects a, a people psychologically. And again, going back to the idea of progress, is there progress happening in Paris or are we stuck? Mm. Well, in a way, uh, there, well, there are two sort of interesting things that strike me about Paris. One is that there is still, uh, at least so far as my experience tells me, there is still a notion of, of Paris and being Parisian. You can you can move to Paris and become Parisian. It's not like uh, it's not like uh, you know being in a small Italian town or or for example, when I was growing up in Charleston, if you if you uh, if your great grandparents hadn't lived there, you didn't really belong. Mm -hmm. But uh, but pa Paris is like Constantinople in the Byzantine Empire. If you you want to become French, you want to act like a Frenchman, speak French, but they're welcome. But there is this sense of being a Parisian and belonging to a neighborhood and having a collective sense of, uh, of well-being. So I don't know whether it's in France altogether or just in Paris where they have, they have rules uh, that benefit the people themselves. We don't have any such rules in America. For example, on Sunday, until recently, I don't know if they've changed this, on Sunday – most of the shops, uh, food shops, are closed unless they're family-owned and operated. Yes, that's still mostly true, or if you're in an exempted tourist area. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But most but of Paris is closed on Sunday. Very, I'm very grateful for that. <laughs> yeah. and, but see, this is but see the, the exemption to to mom and pop operations, which you ought to hear libertarians on this one. Well, that's unfair. Why can't? Walmart move in and do what they want because they're not Parisian because it's not for them. It's for it's it's similarly in in Paris or any any European city. If you after you've been to a after you've been to a bar ten times, the price goes down to some extent. <laughs> depending Paris may be an exception. Oh, it's to say I, I had I, I brought some curtains by my tailor today and he uh, he added it up and it said sixty. He says, but for you it's fifty. Well, yeah, because well, I've dropped a bunch of other euros here previously. You yes, know, so yeah, I, I kind of expect that. It's the same thing with my cobbler. You know, I, I've, I, heard, I've heard American Americans complain when you tell them this. Like, well, shouldn't it be one price for everybody? And I say, why? Definitely is not. <laughs> is you believe in the almighty dollar? Then I mean, uh, the the m money mammon mammon counts more than than uh, than the kindness you show to add courtesy to people who are your regular customers and neighbors. So that's one thing. The other thing is that Paris, Paris specifically, is caught in a, in a trap which is sort of anti-Parisian. That is, the, France of, the Paris of 1860, the France of the Boulevard Haussmann, the, the France of that Haussmann, the, the Paris that Haussmann designed, was a, was a, to to elevate the power of government and make it invulnerable to the people, because the whole point was, you know, we've had too many of these bloody uprisings, you know, where they they make street narrow streets, you tear up the paving stones, you build a wall, you can bid defiance to the forces of of law and order, and uh, and so the new Paris with broad boulevards and uh, easy to move. Uh, cavalry or now tanks, you know, it is uh, it's it's a kind of anti-human uh, design. I'm not saying it doesn't work. I'm not saying that anybody in his right mind wouldn't have but wanted. It, but it's thoroughly it's thoroughly modern, right? Yeah, I mean, it's, right. it's, it's, it that's doesn't. Right. 
in contrast to Florence, right? So as you were talking about, people don't realize sometimes when you're talking about the Hausmannian in Paris, part of it is you can't have snipers on the roof who can just escape and run off down a bunch of medieval buildings exactly. anymore. They're trapped. And so when you think about Florence and all those little narrow alleyways, or even Venice, which is, 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 is situated yeah. much the same way, you, you might go into an alley and it starts to close off and you can't keep walking through it. You'll get stuck as a, as a human. This, that, to me, uh, as you alluded to, I think, before we began our first episode in this, in this miniseries, the, the pleasures of walking through a medieval town or a medieval part of, of a town that, that it just shows you this is, this is how humans build. We, we, didn't, we didn't have a master plan with, with grid streets, right? We, we didn't know how the, the town was going to grow. And as, as it did, we, we tried to, to make the best of it. And I think that when you see these, these cities, this is a, an expression of uh, growth and if we want to use the word progress, um, in, in a sustainable human way. And that when you, when you try to bring the wall down, or I'm thinking of the drawbridge, pull up the drawbridge, uh, close, this is it, that this is, this, it, does, it doesn't flow well with, with how we, we develop or, or we grow a civilization. There always has to be some room for growth. Um, yes, exactly. But you within, can't. You know, to take the Charleston example, in uh, about 1930, they closed the membership of the St. Cecilia Society, which was an elite musical thing, but it was for the, 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 the best, best families. They closed membership to – restricted membership only to people who had ancestors who were members. Hmm. And in other words, no talented outsider, no matter how much he contributed to the city or became identified with the city. Uh, so, for example, if, if – Cicero moves to Rome from Arpinum, but he could never be uh, suppose he could never never join a society because he came from Arpinum. This is a sign of death, not a. It's not a. It, and it's it's conservatism at its worst. It's it's trying to freeze things to a certain period, and uh, and it. Uh, I understand in the case of Charleston why they wanted to do it, but it it is it is not a positive sign. Uh, so there has to be organic growth, you, naive, not overplanned. There's this terrible th idea of city planning that goes back. There were a few experiments in the ancient world. Uh, you know, Hippodamus of uh, Miletus uh, planned a, a, a city colony in, in Italy, for example. But, um, but essentially, ancient and medieval cities grew like Topsy, an old phrase, and uh, I guess going back to Harriet Beecher Stowe, it grew organically and haphazardly. And so this provoked Descartes' famous observation that, well, just as everyone knows that a city is more beautiful if designed by one man rather than growing up over the centuries organically, so too is a system of thought better and more effective if designed by one man, namely me, René Descartes, <laughs> rather than evolving like Aristotelianism over a period of 2,000 years. So uh, this, this is one of the great heresies of progress is that we we can just out of whole cloth, we can design Levittown and Levittown is going to be more beautiful than Paris because Paris, despite all these, these this Osmanian revolution, Paris has still got all sorts of things that evolve naturally. Rome even more so. Rome before, 
Rome before the Risorgimento, before the unification of Italy, was completely chaotic. You know the the the, the Viale in Trastevere, where they've got the uh, the tram running. You know that 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 I believe was uh, that was that was cut through. Uh, Trastevere uh, under when uh, like in the 1880s or 90s and they did other things like they built up they built up this hill overlooking St. Peter's and they built it in a way this is hilarious I was they they they, they constructed a very nice bourgeois building upper bourgeois lovely lovely place lovely neighborhood lovely little shops and restaurants but they put everything at an angle so you could not see the dome of St. Peter's <laughs> This was this was the new Italy, the new Rome. But and Mussolini, uh, Mussolini, who was also you know a radical socialist, he ran a number of things. But you know wherever Mussolini, one, one, wherever his people struck a spade in the ground and find a found a Roman uh, object, then they would halt the project for years as the archaeologists were allowed to go in and, and determine how valuable was it, how and, and in many of his building projects were simply stopped. Others, he allowed the archaeologists to go in and mine the area, and then because a city has to go on. I mean, you can't be uh, uh, American archaeologists ruined, ruined the placa with their investigations of the Greek of the Agora and the, and the Roman Forum uh, because everything it had to turn it into a museum. It had to preserve everything, and as valuable as that is, on the one hand, there's also there's also tradition. You know, Athens has its own traditions. So you have to balance these things, and nothing. It's perfect. I like to say life is like tuning a piano, not like tuning a tuning fork. You know, a, a piano it, with temper, the tempered tuning, nothing is quite right. You're constantly saying, "Well, you tune the you tune the octaves, da 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 da," and you and you turn the tune the fifths, the fourths, the thirds, and by now they're the thirds are out of sync with the octaves. So then you tune down the octaves, and you go back. And have you ever listened to a piano tuner? It's 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 incredibly tedious because they're they're not tuning it to get it right because there is no right. They're always having the distance between two wrongs, mm-hmm. and that's human life. And that's why you need the science of casuistry, not some abstract uh, geometric system of ethics. But that's also why in city planning, yes, you need to take account of problems and landscape and water, but you also have to take account of the way people live and the way they the way they develop organically. Right. And this, and part yeah. of that too is taking into account old usages. I'm always dismayed, and I. I'm not sure where you've seen this trend in other parts of Europe. I've seen it a lot in England, unfortunately, Dr. Fleming, this idea of wouldn't it be cool if we took an old abbey and turned it into a restaurant with some shops? And I've never been more horrified. I, I, can't, even, I can't even go into these buildings. And uh, the idea that you would take something that was used for worship and then say, you know what we should do? We should have a restaurant in here. And think that that is some great civic service to all of us. Yes. Uh, you know, all over, all over Italy, they've taken, they're deconsecrating churches and tuning them into shopping malls, restaurants, factories, and everybody says, "Oh, well, isn't that nice? It's such a lovely building." You know, uh, I'll give you a good, a really good example. Um, have you ever been to uh, Fongombo uh, Monastery? I have not. Yeah. In France, well, you, sh- you really should. It's in. Uh, it's about uh, twenty miles from Bourges, and Bourges is, by the way, a very beautiful town, and it gets almost no tourists. Uh, 
and has, I think, the second largest uh, church in uh, in France. But a uh, very beautiful uh, medieval cathedral. But uh, at Fongombo, you know, it was uh, it was a uh, an old monastery. They, had, they ran a school, and the French Revolution came in and. First, they sold it to a, some petty bourgeois who turned it into a button factory. Hmm. And uh, this beautiful historic, historic uh, monastery, then the, uh, the monks got it back and they promised that they made a deal. They would teach the boys of the neighborhood. They would open a school for the benefit of children and of course, then they got caught teaching them their catechism along with uh, along with the science and math, and they got into trouble again. But on and on and on. And of course, Fongombo was refounded uh, from the Abbey of Solem. And so ultimately, what happened? Solem was put, they put the gun to the head, and they could no. You know, of course, Solem is responsible for uh, re reestablishing uh, uh, Gregorian chant. And so Fongombo uh, became a center of Gregorian chant. But at Salem, they were forced to do the Novus Ordo in French, whereas Fongombo somehow was independent and they should just say, you know, give them a, a, a gesture of dismissal. And so um, during this whole awful period of, of progressive church destruction, which we've been undergoing since the Second Vatican Council, Fongombo by a series of historical accidents, a place that the that the friend the Jacobins tried to destroy and didn't do everything to desecrate, it became the only place left in you know with with under the under the Pope of Rome where they never quit doing the traditional mass in Latin with Gregorian chant done in the 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 uh, the, the historically correct revived manner. Right, I think they, they used what we would know as the 1965 right, but it's closer to the Benedictine right. monastic right. right. But right. all these desecrations that you're talking about, Dr. Fleming, are these, aren't these just attacks on Christianity rather than, than quote-unquote progress? They are, again, they are, I'm sorry to keep on saying they are and they aren't. You know, a, a huge amount of this, you know, when Napoleon came into Italy, uh, most people don't know this. Uh, I was lucky enough to be walking around some Umbrian churches with a very nice uh, lady from Assisi, and she said, "Well, you know, it was it's, some of this is tough to restore because uh, in, under French control they whitewashed it and plastered over everything, and that destroyed a lot of the frescoes." She said, "That's true all over Italy," and I think a lot of people are not aware that a lot of the destruction of art in Catholic churches in Italy was the deliberate work of, uh, of uh, Napoleon's army and of uh, French revolutionary commissars sent out. And similarly, you know, the research under the uh, government of uh, uh, the Kingdom of Italy, even in Piemonte, where they started and when they took over Lombardia, they, they closed Catholic schools, they took over monasteries, they nationalized the church, they, uh, they confiscated things, they, they, they desecrated them, and, uh, and they did a lot of uh, destruction. Because, you know, Victor Emmanuel II is often described as a good Catholic, and uh, it's really hard to believe that anybody who would have anything to do with the filthy atheist Garibaldi was any kind of uh, Christian whatsoever. So a lot of this 
yes, it's 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 aimed, as you say, at de-Christianization. On the other hand, without this notion of progress, that is, we're building a better world, and to build that better world, it's best that we uh, that we desecrate. It's best that we blaspheme. It's best that we that we destroy. The great uh, great prof- one of the great twentieth century uh, prophets of modernism in America was B. F. Skinner, the uh, behaviorist psychologist. And if you uh, read his memoirs, which are quite interesting, and I, I read them because somebody asked me to review them. And um, in the memoirs, Skinner says. Uh, that he would ride buses when he was a med student in Boston. And he said, I never could ride a bus without seeing these awful uh, sports scores, you know, St. John's 36, St. Mary's 16 or whatever. And he hated that the very name of a saint made him cringe. And he said, I could never ride by a church without imagining how I could turn it into a laboratory of behavioral research. In other words, where you torture uh, animals and human beings. Mm-hmm. Um, and this, <laughs> he, he was on the one hand, a, a truly evil uh, atheist, and not just because he was an atheist, but he was his whole conception of humanity was degrading, reducing everything to stimulus and response that there's no there's no free will. There's no spirit. You know what his last big book was beyond freedom and dignity. So but if you if you are looking forward to a world without identity, without gender, in which which neither nature or nature's God has any role to play within human society, then yes, you wish to desecrate churches and destroy them, as Skinner did. But yes, you also want to reinvent the human race and tear it loose from everything in its past. And that impulse makes it possible that that progressive impulse makes it possible to say, oh, well, urban renewal, uh, this old neighborhood, it would cost as much to fix it up as it would to build something nice. That will, of course, deteriorate in 15 years rather than 150 years. And so if we didn't have this destructive impulse of, of progress, then not so much would be destroyed and not so much would have to be rebuilt according to the aesthetic of the, the moment rather than trying to preserve an older aesthetic. Right. Well, and as we progress be beyond our shameful Confederate past in the United States, of course, we have to tear down those monuments. And I'm reminded whenever I think about that whole situation, and I've spoken about it on a previous podcast, Berlin, which is not a city that I would rank up in any of <laughs> any of the, the beautiful cities. It is beautiful in that it has not attempted to tear down any of the monuments that dot all around you have the uh the Siegeschallet which commemorates the the Danish Prussian war not just down the road from the quote unquote Soviet liberation monument and so you have these different parts of Berlin that that are not just torn down because we have to progress and you know we have to leave those terrible things behind that they've the city has has done a good job of leaving things in situ, and we're seeing in a much younger country, in the United States, that the limited history that they do have, 
that has to be swept aside for for progress so that it has can... to be dynamited as the way the the muslims dynamite christian monuments but Stephen, about five or six years ago i was uh, 10 years ago i was in uh, the town of munster in germany and munster was really destroyed by the british air force during the war i mean they they and uh, they think in the t- the people in this town and in the area around it will say if you lend them a sympathetic ear that they thought that the british more than the americans were getting even i mean that they really wanted to destroy everything they could get their hands on especially they enjoyed destroying catholic churches and that um, they blame Montgomery in particular, who for deliberately building road, you know, roads for his tanks, they would, they would just happen to have to go through a church. In, one, in the case of one famous church, they dynamited, they attacked it with tanks, and they still couldn't bring it down because they did know how to build back in the good old days. And, uh, but in Munster, there was, there was nothing left, basically. I mean, they had, you know, there were all, a few old buildings here or there, and they had the foundations. So in the uh, in the fifties they rebuilt Munster as a fifties place. You can just imagine how you know in in the in the like like parts of the ugliest parts of London, and uh, it was hideous. Well, the German government at some point, I think in maybe the seventies, passed a law saying that they would that any any land any uh, entire city that wanted to rebuild according to the way it was before the war, like the federal government would, would pay half or something. And so some towns just say, no, we're happy being modern and ugly because that's, you know, that's what we want to be. <laughs> but uh, Munster, Munster uh, took the money and you go to Munster and it looks a little bit too new. True, but that won't be true in 50 years even. But they built large parts of historic central Münster because they had not only photographs, they had the architectural plans, they had, you know, being German, they had everything in writing. <laughs> and so they have, you could say it's artificial. They wanted their town back. They wanted their history back. And I say including the great place where they have a church there which was not entirely destroyed, and that's where the Anabaptists of Münster were hung up in cages until they died, exposed to the elements. They still have the cages up there. God bless them. <laughs> <laughs> well, some might say the only good Baptist is a is a dead Baptist, but that, that that's for another episode, I suppose. Just just Anabaptists, just Anabaptists. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, to end on a, on a hopeful note, because uh, again, we we could have this discussion. For for a while, I want to I want to go down two roads to to bring us to conclusion of the second episode in our mini series. One is, I'd like you to talk about the relationship of of these different features that we've spoken about with a city that I've heard you speak about uh, uh, well speak well of many times, and that's Siena. For our listeners who may not uh, be familiar with it, to discuss a bit of the layout, how the city looks and and feels, and and then. If there's anything else that you feel that we haven't spoken about regarding progress across these two episodes, I want to give you a chance to, to say that as well before I take us down any more uh, side roads, as it might be. Rabbit, yes, right down the rabbit hole. The, um, uh, just generally, and I think we should uh, finish up quickly, um, there, there are two kinds of cities, it seems to me, that we could look to as examples. Uh, the second uh, are ancient cities which grew organically, like ancient Athens, 
and Rome and other parts of the Greco-Roman world. Of course, they were later on destroyed, usually in Muslim attacks. European cities that developed in the medieval period, or they may have ancient roots, cities like Prague uh, or Vienna, and uh, or Münster for that matter, and they lacked, for one reason or another, they lacked either the resources or the desire to uh, revolutionize the city and to destroy it. There was enough somehow local piety. In some of the towns of central Italy, for example, like Siena or Perugia or uh, Pisa before World War II, a lot of these towns, they, they were taken over by Imperial Florence and they quit building. And in fact, you can usually date the end of a city's independence in, in Tuscany, you could just look at what's what's the most recent magnificent building other than the Medici Fort, the grim Medici fortress on the hill outside uh, protecting the, the Medici holding. And uh, so it'll be, you know, 1350, 1420 or whatever. And it's usually the next the next thing that happens is Florence conquers it. And uh, and it becomes, you know, sort of static, but it remains uh, beautiful and, you know, grows in, in, in little ways. Now, of course, over the centuries, re restoration is necessary, repairs are necessary, and as buildings fall down, of course, you build new ones in a new style. There's no, it's not that you, uh, a city has to be frozen in time or as a kind of museum representing the past. But this is unlike what uh, the example I gave of the Duomo where in Florence, where the Grand Duke of Tuscany uh, want, tore down the facade because, as he said explicitly, it wasn't finished, but it was, it was not consistent with a great Renaissance city to have a Gothic uh, facade on the cathedral. In other words, tearing, destroying... And then, re and then modernizing was a necessary part of, of a, a progressive community. And, uh, and, of course, we talked about how 19th century Paris did, did something quite sim similar. And you ended up with the, the, gr the grotesque monstrosity of the, the Eiffel Tower. And uh, well, I, I still have dreams of I once got lost at night coming back from a restaurant. I had... As Sam Francis liked to say, perhaps dined too well, and and to me and said, "Where am I?" And to look up, but to say, "Oh my gosh, I'm five miles from where I where I thought I was." The um, and then we uh, the there the ancient cities, ancient Athens and Rome. They were constantly rebuilding, constantly going out and and uh, expanding, and you know the Emperor Hadrian built a whole new. Uh, neighborhood in Athens, if you he completed the Temple of Zeus, which is still an outstanding uh, archaeological feature of in, in Athens, and that had been left uh, unfinished for uh, for centuries. He, you know, and they it had been a lot of the pieces had been torn down and everything, and so he, not quite from scratch, but almost uh, he rebuilt it and rebuilt the entire neighborhood. In fact, there's a there's a marker that says on one side it says you know the equivalent of you're you're entering Athens, and on the other side the city of Hadrian, but. And it, it, it's a lovely Roman imperial, but with a very strong Hellenic flavor, because they were, they were not averse 
to to new styles and new building, but but there was no revolutionary agenda. There was no progressive intention, and the great things in uh, on the Acropolis and elsewhere in Athens were simply preserved, and many of them preserved very well until the wars between the Venetians and the Turks. When I believe the Turks turned the uh, Parthenon into a powder magazine, and the Venetians blew it up for them. And uh, but um, um, a lot of stuff lasted a long time, both in uh, both in Italy and Rome. And the, of course, change comes. Technological innovation comes. For example, uh, the Greeks could not, in the classical period, could not have built. The Pantheon in Rome. The, the technology is too great. Similarly, um, that's from the time of Hadrian again. But Hadrian's architects probably could not have built Hagia Sophia in uh, Constantinople either. So yes, improvements can be made. We can even call these improvements progress. But they they it was not a sense that everything has to be always. You know, he. What is the awful Bob Dylan line? He who is not busy being born is busy dying. It's not that we have to keep on escaping from our past. It's a totally different uh, attitude. And so, what I'm suggesting, more or less, in conclusion, is that there's no single cause for uglification and the desecration which we are experiencing in our world. That a lot of it is is a question of money, cheap. A lot of it is decline in taste. A lot of it is hatred of the beautiful and the beautiful because the world, you know, God saw the world and he saw that it was good. Well, if you hate God, then you have to see the world as ugly and at least do your best to make it ugly. But the, the, in the ancient and medieval world and even in the revolutionary world down to the end of the 19th century, the, 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 the notion of worshiping God and the beauty of holiness was not entirely alien, and so beautiful men, even with misguided styles like uh, impressionist painting, men continue to try to create beautiful things. Well, I think that's a good place for us to end this episode and to end our mini-series. As always, thanks so much for your time, Dr. Fleming. All right, thank you. Thank you for listening to a podcast of the Fleming Foundation. All rights are reserved. These podcasts are made possible by our paid members who ensure that our hosts and writers can contribute regularly, not on a volunteer basis. If you have any questions about anything you heard on today's episode, or if you wish to acquire rebroadcast rights, please email podcasts at fleming.foundation. Until next time, on behalf of all of us here at the Foundation, make the most of a dark age.